Collins. We are uh, following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. All right. So uh, there were these four old guys, and they were out uh, golfing, as they normally do. And they, uh, they ended their round, and they went into the clubhouse, and they uh, were talking about their round, sharing their golf stories. And the first old guy said, man, I had a great round today. I hit three riders. The second old guy said, well, I had a great round. I hit five riders. The third old guy said, you know, I did better than that. I I hit seven riders. And the last old guy said, you know, I had the best round I ever played. I hit 12 riders. So they were congratulating each other on their rounds. And next to them, there was a man sitting at the table. And he overheard the conversation. And he leaned over and he said, you know, excuse me, but I've been playing a golf a long time. And I know all the terms. And riders is not a term that I've ever heard used in golf before. What is a rider? And the old guy, one of the old guys said, well, a rider is when you hit the bar far enough that you have to get in the cart and ride to it. <laughs> now, if you've never played golf, that joke may not, make, may not be that very funny, and it probably isn't very funny in general. But I will tell you this, golf is no fun if you don't hit riders. It's absolutely no fun to hit a ball and walk to it for your next shot. If you can't do it well, it's not that enjoyable. As a matter of fact, no sport is very fun if you don't have some capability of playing the sport. You know, the truth is, Christianity is no fun if you can't do it well. And so today, I want to talk about not just doing Christianity well, but I want to talk about enjoying our Christianity. Let's pray before we read. Father... Thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this great opportunity to be here and to come before you. And we pray that you will speak through us, to us, through your word this morning. Uh, Help us to learn what it means to do Christianity well and to enjoy it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start reading in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. If you've been with us the past few Sundays, uh, a couple Sundays back, I should say, we we learned that Jesus had been in, in, in his ministry for about two years. He had gathered around him a group of disciples. He had spent the past two years sort of crisscrossing all through Galilee. And then he went home to his hometown of Nazareth to visit family and to be there. And while he was there, he sent his disciples out to continue crisscrossing all through Galilee and continue testifying about him. He also gave them the same power that he had to perform miracles and to cast out demons. And he sent them out. And they, they went all throughout the region of Galilee... And then it says in verse, uh, in, in verse 31, then, then uh, they came, in verse 30, that they came back and they reported to him all that he had done, uh, all that they had experienced, had done and, and taught and experienced there. Now the question is, because we are following Jesus, where was he? 
Well, there's lots of different theories about where he was. The first one says he was somewhere in this area, just to the, to the southwest of Capernaum, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So apparently, after Jesus had sent the disciples out, it seems as if he probably went back towards the city of Capernaum while they were out crisscrossing through Galilee. Another theory says that uh, they were in the city of Capernaum itself, and that would make a lot of sense because Capernaum was a hub for Jesus' ministry. It was his adopted city. It's where Peter lived, if you remember from way back when, and Jesus moved in with Peter, and that house became sort of the base of operations for Jesus' ministry the whole time he spent in, the whole time he was in Galilee. Now, the passage says that so many people were coming and going. Apparently, the disciples, when they had got sent out, there were 12 of them, and they were sent out in pairs of two. Apparently, for the past several weeks, maybe even months, they did such a good job of canvassing the region that when they came back, people came back with them. How many people? Well, there were so many that the disciples did not have a chance to eat. The region of Galilee, from t head to toe, is about 50 miles, and from waistline, it's about 25 miles. It's not a very big region. There was about 200, 205 towns and villages scattered throughout the region of Galilee. Certainly, over the past few months, the disciples in their pairs of two were able to cover pretty much the entire province with the message of Jesus Christ. But not only that, for the two years prior, Jesus himself, along with the disciples in tow, was canvassing the entire area for the past two years. To say that Jesus was well-known in Galilee would be an understatement. The area was thoroughly evangelized. People had seen miracles. They had heard him teach, and they had witnessed him cast out demons. And then they saw his disciples doing the same thing. And so there was a tremendous buzz. There was a tremendous amount of information about Jesus out there in the region of Galilee. And so when the disciples returned to Capernaum to meet with Jesus and tell them all this amazing news, everything that had happened over the past few months, there were many, many, many people in tow. Some estimates would say nearly 20 to 25,000 people. Later on in the story, you'll see that there were 5,000 men alone. Now, if you add in the women, wives, sisters, grandmas, aunts, and the children, both boys and girls, that number could easily be three, four, five times 5,000. So there was probably something like 25, 20 to 25,000 people that returned to Capernaum with the disciples just to hear Jesus. It reminds me of the early days, way back when, in, in the first few chapters of Mark, when we talked about the ministry of John, and how when he was down here in the River Jordan, down by the Dead Sea, how people from all over Palestine would come by the thousands just to hear John. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing. There's literally tens of thousands of people from all over the region that have come to hear and to be with Jesus. So much so that they didn't even have a chance to eat. You know, if 12 men in groups of two could canvas 
a region of about 50 miles by 25 miles and cover a population of anywhere between a couple hundred thousand to maybe upwards of a million, what could 50 some odd people living in Simi Valley do in Simi Valley? If we were just intentional like they were, if we just went out with intention on a regular basis in the next two years, it is not inconceivable at all for this group of people to make a similar impact on Simi Valley. It's much smaller. It's a much more condensed area. So Jesus says, look, come with me by yourselves. We got to get out of here. We need some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And the first place I already mentioned was somewhere near Magdala. That's one possible area. It was a solitary place, and it was a place where they could have gotten away. But a more probable location is probably here on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, just, just near the town of Bethsaida where some of the disciples were actually from. And this is probably the place they went. Most historians would agree this is the traditional location of, of what's about to happen next. But I want you to know that wherever he was, whether it was on the west or the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the location does not matter. What matters is what we read next. Because what we read next, what happens next, reveals a lot about Jesus Christ, about his unlimited capacity for love, his unlimited capacity of power, and the unlimited potential of faith. And I'm going to put before you that this is the key to enjoying our Christianity. It's the key to, in, to doing Christianity well. So let's read on. Verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So Jesus attempts to sneak the disciples out. They get into the boat and they get on the sea and they head either to the, the, the western or the eastern shore, whichever one, probably the eastern shore. And before they get there, the crowd of people that had gathered in Capernaum ran on foot. There's a few miles, whichever location they ended up going to. This crowd ran on foot to the location. They, they somehow figured out where he was going and got there before the disciples could get off the boat. How many people have ever had to take work home? I mean, how many of us have ever had to take work on vacation? Here they were trying to get some time off, and before they get to where they're going, there was plenty of work already to do. Some 20,000 people were there on the shore waiting for them before they could even get there. Now, what does Jesus do? Does he get angry and shoo the crowd away? Does he throw a tantrum and get back in the boat and go somewhere else? No. It says that he got off the boat and he had compassion on them. The word compassion communicates this, this pain in the, in the stomach. It was a pang, a hurt for people. 20, 25,000 people he hurt in his heart for them. When my kids were born, I felt that kind of compassion. I feel that way for my family. All three of them, I was at their birth, and every one of them, it hurt in my heart, in my stomach, how much I loved my children. Jesus loves people like you and I love our kids. He feels that same kind of compassion for everyone. You, me, them, for the entire world. He feels that on a personal level for every single person. That is an unlimited capacity. 
for love for people. Now, the other, one of the other Gospels tells us that, that uh, when, when Jesus got there, he immediately began healing people. Mark doesn't mention it. Certainly in this crowd of 25,000, there were people who were hurting. There were people who were in need. So he did do that, but, but Mark tells us that Jesus felt compassion not because they were hurting, not because they were in need, but because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what moved his heart. They were lost. I don't know if you know this. I'm not a shepherder. But the, the word for, for shepherd is in Greek is pomen, and it means someone who cares for and guides sheep. And what I'm told about sheep is that sheep without a shepherd will die because sheep are not the smartest animals on the planet. They are generally food for something else. I don't have sheep, but I have two dogs that are kind of like sheep. If they were out in the wild, they would be food for something else. And so Jesus had compassion because when he looked at people, he saw them lost. He saw them desperate, in need, without a shepherd, without care, without guidance. There was no one there looking out for them, and that's what he felt towards them. I want to take care of them. I want to look out for them. When Jesus looks at me and you, when he looks at every person that has ever lived, he sees someone who's lost, who needs guidance, who needs care, who needs someone to look out for them. That's the kind of compassion, that's the, the love that he had in his heart for people. So what did he do? He began teaching them. Yes, he healed them, but he began teaching them. What we need as people, more than anything else, is the message of Jesus Christ. We need to be taught. We need to be guided. We need to be led. Because without a good herdsman, without a shepherd, we are lost. And if you have any question, if you ever doubt that, let me tell you one thing. Look at who we nominated to be our next leader. We are lost. I mean, out of 188 million people, those are the two we picked. I mean, without a leader, and I don't care what side of the fence you're on, the bottom line is, that's who's going to lead us. Without a shepherd who cares for us, we are lost. Even when we try to lead ourselves, we're lost. Even the best of us is lost. It's only Jesus who can truly care for us and who can truly guide us. So he healed them, but he taught them. What did he teach them? Well, he's been teaching the entire first six chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Repent! He preached repentance. He practiced grace. He healed. He loved. He cared for people. But he preached repentance. For the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his message. And he never strayed from his message. And neither did the disciples. We have got to get this into our minds. We have got to get this into our, our environment, our culture, into, our, into who we are as people, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we preach repentance and we practice grace. Because people are lost. They need guidance. And it's not my guidance. It's not my telling you what you should repent of. It's me telling you what Jesus says we should repent of. And that's how we guide each other. That's how we care and love and shepherd and look out for each other. Yeah. 
and we practice grace the entire time. By this time, verse 35, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. So Jesus gets off the boat. It's a long day. There's 20-some-odd thousand people there. He's been teaching and healing. The disciples are next with him. They're serving. I mean, it's a great day for ministry. It's great. What a great Sunday worship service they were having. And it was going. But like all good things, they must come to an end. Amen. There's a point where people got to go home and eat. So the disciples, in their concern for the people, wanted them to go home and find some food or to get to the surrounding towns or whatever. They wanted to dismiss them and give them, give them a chance to find something to eat. You know, it's interesting in the Gospel of Mark that I've been, I've been learning about this in the story, in the overall narrative. But, but this was the end of the day. But, it, but in a lot of ways, this was also the end of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Only a few more things happen in Galilee after this moment. He spends a little bit more time crossing Galilee, but then he ultimately heads down to Jerusalem. We're in the last, we're, we're now at the last six months of his life in the narrative. And so this, this story is really also a conclusion of what he had been doing for the past two years. So Jesus Rather than agreeing with the disciples and saying, okay, let everybody go home after the end of church that day, he said, no, 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 you guys give them something to eat. And of course, the disciples were flabbergasted. I, I, you know, what, 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 hey, honey, uh, yeah, I'm going to be home in a little bit. I have some friends coming over, a couple thousand. Can we, can you get something, can you whip something up for them? You could, you know, you could hear my wife, what? I, what are you going to talk about? We don't have enough food for, yeah, but we'll just check, the, what's in the cupboards? Some bread and crack. that's great, perfect, we're on our way. I mean, you know, any, any normal person would be like, wait, this is insane, we can't feed these people, what are you doing? And the disciples were just so sure of it, there was no way this could be done. There were too many people. There was not enough food. There was not enough money. There were not enough service. It was impossible. Or so they thought. Verse 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves, the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. When you factor in women and children, we're talking about a crowd of 20, 25,000 people. This wasn't just the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, it was actually the climax of Jesus's ministry. It was actually the highest point in his ministry. This is no mere miracle, run-of-the-mill miracle like we've been looking at before, casting out a demon, healing a person, stopping the wind and the waves. This was, in, was, a, was a miracle that was remembered. It was, it was a miracle that could not be believed. Did you know that there are only two miracles in all of the Gospels that are mentioned? 
In all four Gospels, there's only two miracles mentioned in each of them that, that, are, you know, that, that are mentioned in all four. One is the resurrection. The other one is the feeding of the 5,000. That's the impact of this moment. That was the impression. That, that is the magnitude of what's happening here. It is the only miracle that was witnessed by a massive amount of people. All the other miracles were done in much smaller settings. Ten, five, maybe fifty. This was witnessed by some 20,000 people. This is the climax of his ministry. The Gospel of John tells us that after he did this miracle, the people tried to make him king. They grabbed him and were like, he's got to be our king. Free food for life. Free food for life. They were trying to get him. I mean, wow, what a deal. This is better than a chicken in every pot. There's three things, and I'm going to kind of bring us in for a landing here. There's three things that jump out at me as a result of this moment, of this miracle, of this time in history, of this thing that actually did happen. Number one, it revealed the unlimited love of Jesus Christ. He loved 25,000 people like they were his own blood his own children he loves the world every human being that has ever lived as if they were his very own he feels pain in his heart in his stomach over every person that has ever walked the earth it's unlimited love i can't imagine loving 20 you know five people like i love my three kids 10 people, 20 or 100, 25,000 and beyond. He loves every one of us like that. Number two, it reveals his unlimited power. You know, I was reading a commentary, and the guy made this point, and it really stood out to me. So Jesus took five loaves and two fish, which was kind of a standard lunch for a kid in that day. It was a couple of handful of crackers. And some smoked fish. I mean, who doesn't like smoked fish and crackers? Pretty, pretty, standard, pretty standard lunch at the time. He took these little crackers and these little fish, and he reached into the basket, and he took more out, and he passed them on, and they went and passed it on. And then he reached in, and he took some more out, and he passed it, and they passed it on. And he reached in, and he took some more out, and on and on it went. And every time he reached in, there were more crackers. These crackers never grew. There was never any barley or grain that grew. They were never milled. They were never cooked. They were never cooked. They just came out as crackers. The fish were never alive. They never even existed, but they were created right there in the basket, right there in his presence. He just pulled out fish already smoked. <laughs> and he just passed it out. It's just, uh, I don't know how long it took, but for hours, it was just like, take, take the crackers out. Here's some fish. Take them out. Here's some fish. Take the crackers out. Here's some fish. I mean, he just created something out of nothing. That's unlimited power. That's power we have never heard of or seen of before or since. Nothing man has ever done could ever compare to making smoked fish and crackers out of nothing. 
We think we are big. We think we are powerful. We've put somebody on the moon. Of course, there's those that don't think we've put people on the moon. But (laughs) we've put people on the moon. We've created weapons of mass destruction. We've cured various diseases. They don't even come close to one guy, a Jewish guy, 2,500 years ago, sitting on the hillside near the Sea of Galilee with 20,000 Jews around him, picking up some crackers out of him. Just keep more crackers kept coming out. More fish kept coming out. So much so that when everybody ate, it says they were satisfied. That word meant they were full. It wasn't like they nibbled. It wasn't like when we pass the communion and we take a bite. And <laughs> they were full. They'd eaten their fill, and then there were 12 baskets left over. Remember that because there were 12 disciples. We'll get back to that. Don't let me forget if I forget, but we'll get back to that. This is incredible power. Unlimited power. But the third thing, and this speaks to the point for today. How do we do Christianity well? How do we enjoy our Christianity? It speaks to unlimited potential. You see, I don't know if you caught it, but back in verse 37, Jesus said, you feed them. He intended the miracle not to be done by him, but by the 12 apostles. This was their miracle to perform. He wanted them to do it. He wanted them to understand that in him, because of their faith in him, because of their their connection to him, they had unlimited potential. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the sky was the limit. How many people have ever heard the phrase, and I'm going to ask a question after this, so be ready. Tee it up. You ever heard that phrase, tee it up? Okay, for those of you that know that phrase, what does it mean? Put the ball on the tee, but what does it really mean? Set it up, what else? Get ready. Really what it means is go for it. In golf, when you tee up a ball, that's the one time you pull out the big stick. That's the driver. That's the big dog. There's all kinds of phrases for the driver. You put the ball on the tee, you put it up in the air, and they got the longest club with the biggest head, and you back up, and you hit that thing as hard as humanly possible. You just get to unload on that one. It's teed up for you. Now hit it down the fairway. 100, 200, 300 yards, you got to drive to that one. Tee it up means go big, go long, go for it. It's not just the golf term anymore. It's used in all kinds of sports. It's used in, it's ubiquitous in our language now. It means it's it's, it's everywhere. You say, hey man, tee it up. Anthony gets up on stage, man, tee it up. And he rocks out a great song, Demons. What was it, two weeks ago? And everybody was singing that song. Call up John in the morning. He's a salesman. Hey, John, tee it up. That means go out there and make some big sales today, baby. Go. It's all there. It's there for you. Tee it up, baby. It means go big. Hit a rider. That's not the time to hit a little dribbler that you walk up to and try to hit again. It's teed up. Jesus teed up the miracle. 
He put it all, he put the ball on the tee. And he stepped back and he said, hit it. You feed them. For two years, you've been hanging out with me. You've seen me calm the wind and the waves. You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me heal people. I gave you the same power. For the past few months, you've been doing the same thing. Go for it, guy. It's time. Do it. It's your chance. And what did they do? They wussed out. They whiffed it. They didn't swing. Oh, well, there's about 20, but we got five loads to do this. We can't do that. They had all the complaints and all the reasons why. They didn't realize that there's unlimited potential when we act with faith. Unlimited potential. When I uh, first started playing football, I played football in high school. I started in ninth grade. Ninth grade wasn't in high school yet. It was still in junior high at that time. But uh, I played my first year, and I was a blocker. And so my job on one play in particular was to, I was the right tackle. I was to go like this, pull, and then turn, and run down the field and look for the linebacker and block him so that the running back could have a free you know, shot down the field. So we ran the play. Everything went perfect. I turned and I ran. And I was brand new at football and scared. And I saw my coach on the sideline yelling at me, hit him, hit him. It was, everything was perfect. The linebacker was, it was exactly like we practiced. My, my coach happened to be my brother-in-law, Pat. He was right there. And he was yelling, hit him, hit him. I mean, you know, I'm in ninth grade. All this is going on in my head. And I saw that linebacker. And linebackers, you know, at that age usually have played football before, so they're big and mean. And I didn't want to hit him. <laughs> so I didn't. I picked someone else, someone that was not even relevant to the play. <laughs> and the linebacker ran right behind me and tackled the guy, and the play went nowhere. It would have been a touchdown if I would have just blocked that dumb guy. I didn't even have to hit him. I just get in his way. I blew it. Like the disciples blew it. How many times, guys, just think about it for a minute, if we can get honest, how many times have we blown it? How many times has Jesus teed something up for us to hit out of the park and we just whiffed it? We just wouldn't swing. Here's the point. If you want to enjoy your Christianity, if you want to do Christianity well, swing at the ball. Hit a rider. Go big. Don't try to do it safe. Don't try to puddle around. the. the imagine a golfer trying to putt his way around a golf course because it's safe. I want to hit it in the water, and I want to hit it in the grass over here. There's, there's dangers. I'm gonna just, keep, just going to keep putting. It's like that Aflac commercial with the duck. You know, he, just, he keeps hitting it like two feet. No one on the earth will enjoy that round of golf. That is not how you play golf. I'm not a great golfer, but I play golf. And I'll tell you what, I've hit a lot of balls out of bounds. I've hit balls onto the freeway. I've hit balls into streets. I've hit balls into people's backyards. I've hit them into the bushes. I've lost a couple hundred dollars of balls all over this world or golf courses around here. But there's nothing like when you hit the one that goes down the middle. 280 yards. And you, walk, you get in the cart, you drive up there, and you get out, and you are feeling good about that shot. You tell everybody about it. I, 
like the old guys. I, I hit a good drive today out of 18. I hit one good one, and that's the one you talk about. It makes the game fun. It makes the game worth it. When that ball's teed up and you just lay into it and it goes the way it's supposed to go, man, that's the best part of golf. That makes you go back. It's what keeps you coming back. If you want to do Christianity well, if you want to enjoy your Christianity, you got to swing at the ball. You can't be safe. You got to go for it. Fortunately, I played football for three more years. And uh, I never did that again. I never whiffed on a block again. I wasn't a great football player. It's not like I'm, you know, I didn't go to college and play football. And I got beat plenty. There were guys bigger, stronger, and faster. And there were many times I just got ran over. But I'll tell you what, I did not make the block. I didn't fail to at least try. I was willing to stick my head in there again and again and again. And every now and then it worked and the guy ran for a big play or something awesome happened and we cheered. There were other times where I just got run over and like, what just hit me? But the point was, I didn't, I didn't not swing at it. I didn't go for it. If you want to enjoy your Christian life, the only way to play it is to swing big. That's the only way. Trying to just get a little bit of faith every day is not the way to go. It's go big. Take big chances. Talk to the person you're most intimidated to. Confront the people that are the hardest for you to deal with. Reach out to lots of people, not just one every now and then. Go big. Tim Snow is a brother in the Shoreline Church. I can't wait till we get to know him better as we, as we merge. Tim Snow converted his, his, two high school, his two high school children, a, a son and a daughter. Studied the Bible with some baptism. He wasn't even a member of our church at the time. He came out to our church. He's, they're now members. And with his kids, he said, hey, let's do something to reach out to high school kids. So they started a Thursday night little outreach at his house. They have something like 30 kids every week at that house. Every week. For that little Bible study, it's a mixture of high school kids and college kids, and they just keep coming. They love it. Now we have two of them. We have one up in, up the grade up here. We've started one down the grade. The, the, the Burns have jumped in to help Tim with it. They're loving their life. Those people are loving their Christianity because every week, once a week, they're in the mix with 30, 40, sometimes or more kids that they're trying to reach and talk to and connect with. Allie Spaccarelli, Mayan's daughter. With great opposition from her school, eventually fought with the principal and the administration and got a Bible talk started on campus. There's something like 30 to 40 kids come every week to that Bible talk. Allie by herself, a teenager. She's loving her Christianity. We started Simi Church a couple years ago. It, wasn't, it's, it really wasn't, I mean, it seemed small maybe at the time, but I look back, that was a big deal. And I'm loving it. Now we're wanting to merge with Shoreline. That's an even bigger deal. I'm loving it. I don't want to just be a little tiny ministry that does nothing. 
that goes nowhere. I want to be a church that's become, I want to be a church. I want to, I want to build this into, I want to see God build this into a church that is self-supported, that's financially stable, that's able to stand on its own two feet, and then not just stay there, but start other churches. I want to go big. I want to hit the ball as far down the field as I can. And yes, I'm going to hit some out of bounds. Yes, some are going to go in the water. Yes, I'm going to get trucked by bigger players. It happens. But boy, does it feel good when that one goes. When God blesses that one, when you hit that right one and you see it sailing down the fairway or you lay that dude out on the field. I mean, he's laid out toe up on his back. There's nothing more fun than that. When you play the game the way it was meant to be played. If you're not enjoying your Christianity today, maybe it's because you're not playing, you're not doing Christianity the way it was meant to be done. Because you're not doing it with faith. You're trying to be safe. What is it that you want to do for God? Let me, let me rephrase that. What big thing do you want to do for God? The point of the message today, if you hear nothing else, is go for it. Take a swing. You may miss, but it's better than not swinging at all. And then keep swinging, because eventually you're going to connect. And that's where you're going to love your Christian life. Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to close out with a final song. Oh, thank you. Come on up. So Christian reminded me about the 12 baskets. Thank you. The disciples whiffed it, right? What did Jesus leave them with? 12 baskets to remember what could have been. Let's not be those guys. Let's be the guys who put it all on the field and hit the home run. Amen.